Good morning. Most all of us at some point in our lives get the opportunity to start a new job where you've got a new boss and you've got to figure out the ropes in this new situation. And it's really helpful if you have somebody to kind of show you around and uh, help you know what to expect from this new boss in this new place. Again, most all of us face that at some point. Well, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, as we finish the book today, Paul is essentially doing that for the Thessalonians. This little church that he only spent three weeks at, he wasn't there very long, they were new in the Lord, they committed themselves to Christ, they confessed Jesus as Lord, which meant that Caesar was no longer Lord, that self was no longer Lord, that they were learning to follow a new master, a new boss, Jesus. But, you know, it's hard to know how to do that sometimes. It's a a change of life. And so Paul wrote this book to really help this young church in this new endeavor of following Jesus as Lord. For them, it meant a lot of persecution. It was tough. At the end of this book, where we're going today in chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, Paul gets especially practical He has talked up to now about uh, their walking in faith and in love and in hope. But now he wants to get really practical because he wants to help them understand what it means to actually walk in everyday life with Jesus as Lord. What does it look like? So he gives a picture, not a complete picture, but some really practical pictures of what it means to walk with Jesus as Lord. He puts shoe leather on everyday life, and on these concepts of love and faith and hope. So let's look together at this passage beginning in verse 12 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. And first he talks about love. And what he helps us see is that love, if Jesus is Lord, our love will be personal. It will be personal. You see, it's one thing to to say, be told to love others. For us, that's pretty abstract a lot of times. What does it mean to love other people? Be nice to them? You know, what does it look like? And I've heard people say, yeah, well, I love, I love everybody. You know, I don't really like Bob very well or Sarah or whomever, but, but I love everybody. <laughs> But what Paul's getting at in this passage is he says, you know, it's those people that are hardest to love that are the real tests. And if Jesus is Lord, it's the hard to love, the difficult to love that we will especially learn to love. At the the end of the last section, verse 11, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but it says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing doesn't translate well, but in the, in the Greek, it's encourage or build up one to one. You see, love is meant to be personal. It's how you treat that person next to you. It's very, very practical. So he goes on to give us some specific kinds of people that are hard to love. And he begins with church leaders. <laughs> church leaders are not always easy to love. <laughs> Verse 12 and 13, let me read these for you. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate, that you know or that you acknowledge those who diligently labor among you 
and have charge over you in the Lord and who give you admonishment or instruction. It's, it's who challenge you in your faith. He's talking about those who are somehow leaders in the church environment, whether they're elders or pastors or maybe a Bible study leader, a ministry leader. And he says those people are ones who he describes as those who work hard. They labor on your behalf. It says they lead you. They stand in front and they give you direction and they lead you a certain direction. They say, follow me. Let's go. Let's go this way with the Lord. And there are also those who admonish you, who at times come into your life and challenge you about how you're walking and encourage you to walk a different direction. That's how he describes church leaders. Those are really the callings of church leaders to care for the flock, to get involved, to lead and give direction and to admonish where that's necessary. And he says those kinds of people you are to acknowledge, to highly esteem and to live at peace with one another. Don't create conflict with each other. Work things through so you don't create more work for your leaders. So he says esteem them. Treat them well. Acknowledge them. Now, I've got to admit, as a, as a leader at Cole, I feel incredibly supported and uplifted by this body. I, I just think we're, I've been in five different churches I've ministered in, and this is by far the most supportive and caring of leaders. But there may be somebody here who needs this encouragement. Maybe you're like me. <laughs> You see, when I first came to Cole, I was on staff, but I kind of had my own little area of ministry, and I found myself at times falling into a critical spirit towards the leadership here at Cole. It's easy to do that. In fact, it's the most natural thing for the human heart to want to point the finger at those that have leadership over us. It is a natural thing to gather around the water cooler and be critical of your boss. You see, it's a, it's a natural thing because... They have some pull over you, and so we respond with this sense of criticalness, this complaining. And in our culture, it's even getting worse because there is such a mistrust of leaders. Whether they're politicians or pastors or whoever it is, there's a mistrust of those in leadership. But what Paul's saying is if Jesus is Lord, that we will not have that critical complaining spirit. In fact, we will respect, esteem those leaders and live at peace show them respect why do we do that why should we do that notice what he says he says treat them with respect esteem them highly why because of their work because of their work not because they always make the right decisions or that they always do the right thing or that they always respond in a perfect way. If that was the case, then we'd all have to resign. <laughs> and I guess you could leave. <laughs> because, you know, we're just people too, seeking to follow the Lord. So he doesn't say esteem them because they do all those things right. But it says esteem them because they are working hard for your sake. You see, leadership is hard. It's a struggle. And I would sit back and be critical of leaders, and then God has a sense of humor. He made me a leader. <laughs> and I realized how hard it is, how much you anguish for those in your care, how you feel the weight of the responsibility, 
and the burden for those that God has placed in your care as an under-shepherd of Jesus. And it is a big burden. I think of uh, one of our elders, George Blakeman, who's now on leave because he's experienced a heart attack and he's facing cancer surgery down the road. And I have to think that some of what he's going through is because of the burden he has carried in recent years as an elder. So he, so he says, Paul says to the Thessalonians, esteem them, recognize them, appreciate them. Don't make their lives harder. Live at peace. Why? Ultimately, because Jesus is Lord. And he's called us to love those that maybe aren't always easy to love. Then he goes on to some other categories of people that are very difficult for us to love. Because some people are just pokey. They're just prickly. (laughs) They're just hard to deal with. And he names some specific categories here. And he says, if Jesus is Lord, love will be personal. Even with people like this, he says in verse 14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Who are the unruly? It's really the word lazy, the idle, those who are just never making efforts to get any better or to do anything or to get involved. These are kind of the spiritually fat people, always taking in, but they never give out, never serve. In the Thessalonian church, people were actually, we see this in the, in the next book as we study Second Thessalonians, there were people that were refusing to work at all and they were expecting the church to just take care of them. So there's that kind of laziness, but there's also the spiritual laziness that says, no, you guys all do the work, I'm just going to take and take and take. Another category that's kind of hard to love, he says, encourage the faint-hearted The faint-hearted. Who are the faint-hearted? These are those that are always fearful, that struggle to trust God, that you can encourage them. Okay, help, trust God in this, trust God in this. And they always seem to be discouraged. They're always down. Life's always a bummer. It's always overwhelming to them, and they get pretty beat up by life, and they never seem to get beyond it. It's real easy to get impatient with those kind of people. You, You encourage them, and they never seem to change. And it's hard, they're hard to deal with. But we're to love them as well. Then another category of people. Help the weak. The weak. Who are the weak? Well, the weak are those who just don't have much strength or faith. There's no spiritual muscles. They're overwhelmed by doubts. And you can tell them truth, and then they're right back where they were. They just never seem to have the strength to really trust. They never seem to get beyond it. They're overwhelmed by circumstances they can't handle, by spiritual attack. They have poor self-worth. They're just plain weak. So how does he say to love these three categories? Each of them, he says, a little different. He says, with the lazy, with the idle, he says, admonish them. Come alongside him and encourage him. Come on, get involved. Let's go. Bring them along with you. Let's get involved in this ministry. And, and you're encouraging them to step out and, and have courage and trust the Lord. So you're admonishing them to get going. How about the faint-hearted? Do we rebuke them or admonish them? No. He says, uh, literally the word is encourage in my translation, but more literally it's comfort. Those who are faint-hearted, who just never seem to have the strength to, to, and they're always discouraged and they just can't seem to trust God. He says, keep comforting them. Come alongside them. Keep encouraging them. 
walk with them in their difficulty. And how about the third category here that he gives us, which are the weak. What are we supposed to do with them? It says help. Well, help isn't a great translation. The word really means to hang on to, to grasp hold of. You know, those that are weak, that just seem to be overwhelmed all the time and they can't, don't have strength to just handle what life throws at them. They're always overwhelmed by doubts. He says, grab onto them. Grab onto them. Don't let them go. Don't let them get isolated because if they get isolated, their weakness will cause them to fall away. So move alongside and grab them. Hold on to them. You see, that's what we're to do. And it's real easy with these kind of people to just get frustrated after a while and get tired of having to deal with those kind of people. But notice how he ends this verse. Be patient with everyone. Be patient. It means you can't give up. You'll always have these kind of people among the body of Christ. And he says, love needs to be personal. And that means caring for people like that. I have someone in my life that, um, I'll call him Tom. Haven't seen him for 15 years. He's in an old church that I was at before. And we talk regularly on the phone, and Tom has the hardest time trusting God. He is always in some crisis. It's always difficult. And i got to admit, when I find that it's time for us to talk, we have a regular scheduled appointment, when it's time for us to talk, I kind of dread it sometimes. And I've been impatient at times. And I felt like, God, is he ever going to get it? And God keeps telling me, just hang on to him. Keep encouraging him. Keep pointing him towards me and just hang on to him because he's weak. And he doesn't have the strength to handle life and he needs you in his life right now. You see, that's what God's called us to do. And it's hard to be patient. But love needs to be personal, even with those kind of people that are really hard to love. And he gives one more category. You think he hasn't gotten personal enough? (laughs) Listen to verse 15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always, always pursue or seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. What about those who really do you harm, who act in an evil way towards you? What what does love look like then? He says, even then it needs to be personal. Seek, pursue what is good for that person. Seek what's good for that person. Don't return evil with evil, but return good. Now, this is a hard one because people cause us great pain and great wounds. And it's hard for us to move towards them in love. Let me just say, if someone has done you great harm, I don't think Paul is saying that Continue to let them do evil to you and to harm you and to wound you. I don't think he's saying that. But he's saying pursue a course that brings good into their lives and for everyone. Now, if someone really has done harm to you and deserves to be in jail, I think they should go to jail and you should help them go to jail. I think that's what it means to pursue what's good for everyone, to protect other people from this person. But then maybe it means to forgive that person to move into their lives, to share Christ with them, to look for a way to share the gospel and encourage them 
to walk with God. You see, love needs to be personal. And I think a wonderful example of that, the best I can think of in recent years, is the Amish. When the gunman came in and killed several of their kids in a classroom and wounded others, and it was a horrible situation, what did the Amish do? They forgave him publicly, and they moved into his life to encourage him and to care for his family as he went to jail. That's an amazing picture. If Jesus is Lord, love will be personal. It will care for those who are especially hard to love. Especially hard to love. You see, if Jesus is Lord, love will be personal. Even with leaders. (laughs) Even with the prickly people who are hardest to love. Secondly, our faith, if Jesus is Lord, our faith will be practical. Now, we talk about faith a lot, but it's confusing for us. You know, faith is often really abstract. Oh, yeah, I trust God. I believe in Jesus. Sure, but what does faith look like day to day, minute by minute? If you're really living by faith, what does it look like? Well, Paul gives us a series of eight short commands to help us understand what faith really looks like in our lives on a day-to-day basis. If you're living by faith, if Jesus is Lord, your faith will be practical. Before we get into the section, I want to just describe for you a woman that I met this week. She is a young mother who grew up in Russia under the Soviet bloc. Her father was a pastor. His grew up as a pastor, now he's retired, in Russia. He spent six years in jail. They experienced all kinds of persecution. She didn't leave there until she was 18. So as she grew up, she experienced things being thrown at her. She was teased at school. She experienced tremendous persecution all her life there. I asked her, just out of curiosity, I said, what do you, how would you compare the faith of the people or the, the Christian life of the people there in Russia that you saw, you and your family and others, compared to Christians in America? And she said, oh, there's a big difference. Two things especially stood out to her. She said, American Christians are never content. They always want more. They think what they have isn't enough and they have so much more than we ever had. And we were content. We were so thankful for everything we had. But American Christians are never content. And secondly, she said, American Christians do not live by faith. Said we had to live by faith. We had to trust God for everything in our lives when I was in Russia. But here, Americans have everything they need. They don't need God a whole lot. And so they don't trust God for very much. Well, what a sobering challenge for us to think about, okay, we're called to live by faith, not by sight. What does it mean to live day by day, minute by minute by faith? So Paul shows us some wonderful practical pictures here. First command he gives is rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now notice it's a command, something he tells us to do, which means we can choose to do it. You see, biblical joy is not this superficial feeling of happiness because our emotions just go up and down, don't they? Based on all kinds of things. It might be the weather, you know? It might be whatever, hormones. It might be all kinds of things that cause 
our superficial feelings to go up and down. So when he says rejoice always, he's talking about something way deeper than that. To rejoice always means to be confident that God is at work in whatever you're going through. So you can have a deep joy that you are in God's hands no matter what is happening in your circumstances. That is what it means to rejoice always, to continue to remind yourself God's in control. So even though I may feel bad, I have joy because I know I'm in his hands. You see, that's faith, to rejoice always. Secondly, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Now, what does that mean? We can't just be talking to God all the time. How would we work? How would we live life? What does this look like? Let me give you a little picture from my own life. I think for quite a long time, my relationship with God and with Jesus was kind of like seeing him as a consultant. You know, I had his phone number. (laughs) I could page him. And I worked hard to live the Christian life. And if I ever needed advice, I could certainly turn to him or I needed his help. I could call him. I could pray to him. But mostly the Christian life was kind of on my own. And I think a lot of Christians live that way. And that's why Paul is saying, no, your faith needs to be real. It needs to be practical. It needs to be every moment. Pray without ceasing. What does that look like? Well, maybe another picture. Certain days, not that often, but certain days, I really get to spend the whole day with my wife, Jeannie. And when we spend the day together, we may not be talking all the time. In fact, we may do other different projects. We may not be doing the same thing all the time. But when we spend the day together, there's this awareness that the other person is there always. There's the sense that we are together in everything we're doing today. We are spending time together. You see, that's a better picture, I think, of what praying without ceasing is like. I like the way Leon Morris put it in his commentary. He says this, this praying without ceasing. It's not possible for us to spend all our time with the words of prayer on our lips, but it is possible for us to be all our days in the spirit of prayer, realizing our dependence on God for all that we have and are, realizing something of his presence with us wherever we may be, and yielding ourselves continually to him for the doing of his will. Like the way Max Lucado put it, He said, pray always. If necessary, use words. See, praying without ceasing is an awareness that God is with you and and constantly off and on talking to him, but being in his presence, knowing he's there, that's living by faith. A third command, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul picks this one out and he says, by the way, Highlight this. Use your yellow highlighter. (laughs) In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will. Of all the things he's saying, he says, this especially is God's will. Why is it so important to give thanks? Because giving thanks is what builds our faith. It's an expression of faith. You see, when you're in the midst of difficult things and you're able to give thanks in the midst of that, it builds your faith. 
It encourages you to trust Him and it reminds you that He is in control. It's one of the most repeated commands in the New Testament. Give thanks, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. But notice He doesn't say, for everything, give thanks, but in everything. There are some things that happen to us and in our world that are evil, that are bad, that are wrong. He doesn't say give thanks for those. But he says even when those things happen to you and in our world, you can give thanks because you know that God is a redeemer. He will redeem it and use it for good. He is with you and he'll give you the strength to get through it. He has forgiven you and you are his son or daughter and he loves you in the midst of whatever you're going through. There are many things to give thanks for. And if we can foster that and encourage that in one another and in our own lives, our faith will grow stronger and stronger. In everything, give thanks, he says. So we've got to look for the good that God is doing. Look for his hand to be involved. And even if we can't see it, we know that somehow he's there and therefore we can give thanks. These are very practical suggestions of how faith must be practical in our lives. Then in the next section, he gives five more exhortations that help us see how practical faith is to be. Verse 18 through 22. Excuse me, 19 (laughs) through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. What's he getting at here? Don't pour water on the Spirit. Don't put out the fire of the Spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Well, you see, in their day, they didn't have the New Testament. Probably no other letters were being passed around at this time of the New Testament yet because this is one of the earliest ones that were written. We don't even think the Gospels maybe were written by this time. So they didn't have the New Testament to look to and hear from God. So what God did is he anointed certain people with prophetic gifts and those prophets would speak the word of the Lord to people to give insight and to build the church. Thus says the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And they would speak the word of the Lord. But there were often false prophets. So he says in this section, he says, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise what people say. Don't neglect or avoid hearing directly from God. God still speaks. But he says, examine it carefully. And and look at it. Is it really true? Does it fit with what you know to be true? Does it fit with the scriptures? And if it does, hang on to it. But if not, abstain from it. Push it away from every form of evil. You see, God, if Jesus is Lord, He still speaks today, primarily through His Word, and we have the New Testament. They didn't. But He also speaks through one another. And He does still gift people with the gift of prophecy. So if someone comes to you, you hear someone speaking what they claim is the Word of the Lord, The exhortation for us is don't just turn off and say that can't be from God, but examine it. And if it really seems to be from God, from talking to wise people and looking at the scriptures, then hang on to it. But if not, avoid it. So expect God to speak. You see, if Jesus is Lord, live by faith. And part of living by faith is listening to him and hearing from him through other people. 
So faith is meant to be practical. If Jesus is Lord, it's real. It'll hit you right at the point of difficult circumstances. So we learn to rejoice in the midst of those and give thanks and pray without ceasing. That's what faith looks like in a practical way day by day. If Jesus is Lord, not only will our faith be practical, but our hope will be fixed. It will be secure. It will be solid in Him. I have a friend who's a boat captain in Lake Tahoe. He takes charters out. He has a really nice boat. And I've stood on the shore and watched these huge storms come in and seen his boat out in the water. Nobody on it. It's just out there in the water. And these storms come through and the, and the waves are just crashing and the boat's being tossed all around. But you know what? It's never hit the rocks. It's never been smashed against the shore. Why is that? Because he keeps it firmly anchored to the rocks below. And that anchor allows it, though it gets tossed back and forth, to not get smashed by the waves. That's what hope is meant to be like. Hope, too, is meant to be very real in our lives. It's meant to help us in the midst of life being crazy and confusing and hard and we get knocked around. But hope keeps us from getting smashed against those rocks. What does hope look like practically? How does it get us through those tough storms? Well, here's what he says in verse 23 as Paul prays for the Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. What are we putting our hope in? What are we really trusting God for? First, he says that you might be, uh, may he sanctify you entirely. In other words, our hope is that when we face Jesus, everything we've struggled with here in ourselves, our sin and the bodies that are falling apart and all the struggle we face, that I will be completely sanctified. I'll have a new body. My soul will be his. Everything else will be gone. And I will be like him. What a hope we have. You see, that is our hope. That's the anchor should anchor us through the midst of this life that's just crazy. But not only that, he says, and may your body, soul, and spirit be preserved. And that word really means guarded. It's a military term. Be guarded until the coming of Jesus. You see, our other hope is not that we'll get there someday, but that all the way along the way, every part of us will be protected, guarded by Jesus. So that we don't need to fear that somehow we're going to be lost. That either we'll fall out of the boat and drown and that'll be the end or, and lose our salvation or that somehow that we'll jump out of the boat ourselves. No, he's guarding us from all of that, even from ourselves. So our hope is that he will get us there. Now imagine you're running a marathon and you've never run one before and you're really nervous about making it 26 miles. But then somehow you got a message from God that said, you know what, you are going to make it all the way. No problem. You're going to make it. Now that, wouldn't that change the way you'd run? I mean, if, if you're worried about making it, you're going to, every little ache, you're going to go, oh no, my leg's hurting. I don't know if I can make it. 
you know, and I'm only this far, or you hit the wall at 20 miles, and you're going, I don't know if I can go any farther, and I don't know if I can finish. But if you knew you were going to finish in a decent time, then you can enjoy the journey. You see, that's hope for us. He's promised we're going to get there. He's going to guard us all the way so we can trust Him and let that hope anchor us so that we're free from fear and we're free to love and live by faith. That's the anchor of what hope is meant to do. But, you know, is it a wishful hope? No, because of verse 24. Faithful is He who calls you and He will bring it to pass. Jesus called you to be in His kingdom, His child, His son, His daughter. And He will make sure you get there. He's promised that. So your hope can be absolutely secure so you can enjoy the journey. Rejoicing always. Praying without ceasing. Giving thanks in everything. Knowing He has you in His hands. And He will not let you out. At the end of the book, Paul ends with some goodbyes. He says this, Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Now, I don't see too many of you obeying this passage. (laughs) Obviously, in Middle Eastern culture, that's cultural. You know, you kiss people on the cheek. That's a greeting in Middle Eastern culture. It's not the way we tend to greet one another in this culture. And so, maybe the way we would translate it is, greet one another with a hearty handshake. Or if you're guys, greet one another with a big chest bump. (laughs) or whatever. I don't know. Thanks, Mike, for that little suggestion there. (laughs) Then he says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, Paul loves these people. He loves the people in that church and he wants them to have a faith that's practical, that's real, that they learn to live with Jesus as Lord in everyday life, that they learn to love in a personal way, even those that are hard to love. If Jesus is Lord, we can do that. If Jesus is Lord, we can live by faith in a practical way, giving thanks for every, in the midst of everything, praying without ceasing, rejoicing always, listening for him, examining everything. And we can learn to be anchored firmly in our hope because we are in His hands and He's promised to get us there. You see, that's the Christian life. That's what God's called us to. He spurs us on to let Jesus be Lord of every area of life, in real life, everyday life, home, work, wherever we are, so that in the end, He will be glorified. I'd like us right now as we close the service to, before we sing closing song, for you to just pray silently for a minute with the Lord, between you and the Lord, and just listen to Him, ask Him to speak to you about what we've talked about this morning in this passage that you need to grow in. Maybe somebody that's been hard to love, maybe it's been hard for you to rejoice in everything. Maybe you're having a hard time living by faith and hope that he, you're in his hands. Whatever it is, lay it out before the Lord for the next minute or two, and then I'll close. Lord, thank you that you are faithful.
You have called us and you will bring it to pass. Therefore, our hope can be secure, fixed in you. But in the meantime, Lord, life is a mess sometimes. And we get confused and we have doubts and it's hard. But thank you for these very practical words of Paul. And Lord, I pray that we would be people that would reflect that you are Lord. You're Lord of the whole universe, not just of us. And ultimately, your reign will come. And so we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in a way that reflects your glory and reflects your lordship in the way we love, in the way we live by faith, and in the way we hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Because Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He's been given all authority. And the way the world will know that is as they see people who are living as though Jesus is Lord. But did you know the entire world, every person will one day bow before him as Lord. So we have a message to spread now by the way we live, that Jesus is Lord. Paul writes in the book of Philippians, Jesus, because he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. Doesn't leave anybody out, does it? And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So walk with him as Lord so that the world may know that he is. God bless.